Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show about ideas and culture with an emphasis on ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Podrick Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Becky Hogg, as well as regular guest presenters. Little Atoms actively promotes science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. Hi, welcome to this week's Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and on tonight's show, I'm talking to Misha Glennie. Misha Glennie is a distinguished journalist and historian. As the Central Europe correspondent, first for The Guardian and then for the BBC, he chronicled the collapse of communism and the wars in the former Yugoslavia. He won the Sony Gold Award for Outstanding Contribution to Broadcasting. The author of four books, including the acclaimed McMafia, he has been regularly consulted by the US and European governments on major policy issues and ran an NGO for three years, assisting with the reconstruction of Serbia, Macedonia and Kosovo. Misha's latest book is Dark Market, Cyber Thieves, Cyber Cops and You, which is what we'll be talking about in this interview. Well, I'm joined now by Misha Glennie. Misha, thank you very much for speaking to Little Atoms today. You're welcome. So we're going to be talking in the main about your, your new book, Dark Market. Now, I read your previous book, McMafia, and it was, uh, you know, a look at global organised crime and some incredibly scary people. But I think it's, it's fair to say that people will be familiar with the type of characters that feature in the book and their sort of milieu and the violence, etc. The criminals that you write about in Dark Market couldn't be couldn't really be further from that stereotype. So why did you feel you wanted to write about them? Well, I think that's true. And I think it's a very important point that people involved in cybercrime, not all of them, but most of them have a very different Profile, and that's to do with the nature of how crime on the internet is perpetrated as opposed to in, in the real world. I mean, I actually became interested in cybercrime because of research I was doing for McMafia, particularly in Brazil, when I was introduced to a group of uh, cyber criminals, four of whose accomplices had been imprisoned. But I spoke to these four, one of them in particular, or two of them in particular, who had avoided the police successfully and so they were able to explain to me exactly what they did they were very young they were all kids they were all under 20 at the time and the one who I spoke to in most detail explained that he had written a program called get mail for his accomplices which is basically an email culling program so it just goes around the world hoovering up email addresses and then these were then sent out for a big phishing scam persuading people to give up their bank account passwords and codes and so on. So after I'd interviewed them I then went to see the cyber police in Brasilia who had arrested the four members of the group and then I spoke to the Sao Paulo branch of a big American security company, ISS, which has subsequently been bought up by IBM, as they had assisted the police in this case. And conveniently, the headquarters of ISS is in Atlanta, Georgia. And the chief of their special investigations unit, which was called X-Force, happened to be down there. And he was a former member of, or former employee of the CIA. So he explained to me in sort of geopolitical terms within the framework of criminology what exactly was happening, happening in cybercrime. And I realized then and there that this was bound to be a boom area 
and that, for reasons which I'll explain in a minute, it's also bound to be a little different from traditional organized crime. And so then and there I decided that the next book would have to be about cybercrime, that I would want to explore this world. Now, coming to the difference which you pointed out at the beginning, the key thing is that it's very difficult to deploy violence Mm -hmm. on the internet. In traditional organized crime, the credible threat or the actual deployment of violence is essential to most people involved in the Mm -hmm. trade. With the internet, that's that's not the case. And so it attracts a much broader variety of people. Roughly speaking, they divide into two types, both of whom I had conversations with during the research for the book and some of whom I, I still see and I'm in touch with. The first group are the geeks, people with advanced computer ability who find the world of the internet endlessly fascinating and explore it almost as a sort of congenital urge. It's the best way I can describe it. They're often very good at maths and physics. They're usually young, like the guys in Brazil. And there is a hint with some of them, and sometimes it's much more than a hint, that they suffer from some type of spectrum disorder, i.e. an order moving towards the scale of Asperger's Mm -hmm. or something like that. So that's the first group. And the second group, ironically, are rather down the other end of the uh, of the spectrum, as we call it, which is they are very good empathizers. And good empathizers, particularly those who fall into the category of psychopathic empathizers, are extremely good at persuading people to do things, to get them to do things that they want them to do, which may not objectively be in their interests. And these are these are known within cybercrime as social engineers. So you have the geek and you have the social engineers, and those are the two fundamental types. We could perhaps talk about what sort of things we're talking about when we say cybercrime. Before we do that, what I think is is fascinating is how much the lines are blurred. And like on the show before, we've talked a lot about libertarian type internet philosophy and the sort of cyber utopians. And then you've got the hackers and hacking culture. And then you've got the criminals. And the lines between all of those groups are, are sort of yes, very indistinct. In, indistinct. And, of course, you can add to that, then you have the intelligence agents Absolutely, yeah, or, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's interesting military how, cyber activists. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to begin with. We'll talk more about the, uh, the sort of intelligence agencies late, later, mm. but it's, it's interesting to see how easily the hackers slip between the criminal fraternity and law that, enforcement That's fraternity. right. And, of course, their motivation, I mean, in terms of their engagement with law enforcement... What you see in the United States in particular is is that uh, criminal hackers or cyber criminals who are caught in the act, as it were, are often then pressurized by the Secret Service or the FBI to act as what are known as CIs, um, confidential informants. And, you know, they will have a long sentence hanging over their head and told to gather information on their fellow cyber criminals and pass this to police if they're to avoid that sentence. Sometimes this has worked, sometimes it has backfired spectacularly. That tends to be an American practice more than a European practice where the uh, legal constraints on police are greater than they are in the United States. But you have to look at people's motivation. First of all, amongst those involved in criminal hacking, there are people, a lot of people who are not motivated by money. And there are a couple of characters in this book here who I know, who I know very well now. And I know that 
Money is not their primary goal. Their primary goal was to be recognised as a really good hacker. And that meant a lot more to them. There are some people who are, of course, interested by money. But then you have the interesting case, particularly recently, of the hacktivists like Anonymous and Lulsec, who are regarded in the eyes of law enforcement as no different Mm -hmm. from people engaged in crime, uh, you know, for personal financial gain and things like that. But of course, in reality, they are rather different because they're not doing this for financial gain and they are veering into the political and into the ideological. And what that highlights is the impossibility of really defining what the internet is and what people's attitude and relationship with the internet is and how they understand the lines to be to be very blurred. So yes, this is difficult. You know, you will have someone who has developed his skills as a criminal hacker, possibly working with a gang, possibly just for money, who may well be recruited by a commercial company interested in engaging in a bit of cyber industrial espionage, which is essentially hacking into a, a rival company the uh, the network systems of a rival company to ascertain from data what their sales strategy is, what their new product line might look like, and so on and so forth. And then use that uh, information to gain a competitive advantage over that rival. Now, in order to do that, and it does go on quite a lot, you have to have the skills of uh, a relatively advanced hacker. And so, obviously, the criminal milieu is where you're likely to recruit from. We should perhaps, it probably is a good time to look at the um, this intelligence services, law enforcement agencies' attitude to cybercrime. And there's, the two things come across in the book. And the first is that, in a lot of cases, national security agencies aren't really that bothered because this is something that's not necessarily affecting people in their in their own backyard. It's a worldwide crime. But also, to extend that, they're often heavily involved themselves. <laughs> or at least they're willing to turn a blind eye in a more sort of constructive way. Well, they're certainly present, I would say, <laughs> in the first instance. In terms of their willingness, not so much intelligence agents, the first part of your questions is police forces. Mm. And that's, of course, because police forces have very limited resources. Investigating and prosecuting preparing cases for cybercrime is incredibly labour-intensive and usually requires people with some knowledge of computer technology and security technology. Now, when you get these cases, for example, of large credit card or bank account frauds being perpetrated from a certain territory, there's one in the opening of Dark Market which is perpetrated from Scunthorpe of all places, but None of the credit cards that had been compromised, and there were tens of thousands of them, had been compromised within the Humberside area. And so the chief of police for Humberside said to the investigator, how many of the victims are in my area? And he said, none. And he said, well, in that case, you know, you're one of my best homicide officers. I can't lose you to a case where (laughs) it's of no value to me in terms of targets. And this is an interesting thing from the Blair period Mm -hmm. in terms of the criminal justice system is, is that Chief police officers have to come up with their targets, and they can't come up with their targets if they're investigating crimes where the victims do not reside in their own area. I mentioned before that we should we should probably establish what specifically what sort of things we're Mm. talking about when we say cybercrime. What are the commonest examples? 
Well, the commonest example, the low-hanging fruit, and which is referred to in wonk speak as high-volume, low-impact, is the theft and then cloning of credit card details. There are two ways of getting hold of credit cards. One is through skimming, uh, which is the attaching of, um, of a device on an ATM machine which reads the card details as the device does and it then sends those details to a computer and you can then use them in order to create cloned credit cards. And then the other way is when people get into databases, which is actually a much more efficient and increasingly common way as credit card uh, anti-fraud devices become ever better, particularly in the United Kingdom as it happens. They have a very good record of uh, preventing skimming. But access to databases is still a big problem. Even a bank like Citibank, which has a reputation in the United States, having been skinned alive during the first decade of this millennium by credit card fraudsters, it had an overhaul of its security systems and it's reckoned to be the best in the United States. And uh, just six weeks ago, it announced that it had lost 200,000 credit card and account details of its customers. So that is a very big, that remains a very big problem. But that is just the kind of entry-level stuff. There are a whole raft of crimes that are committed attacking more sophisticated computer networks. So, for example, there are people who engage in so-called pump-and-dump schemes when they will crack into network computer system that's running on the financial markets something like the London Stock Exchange. It hasn't happened to the London Stock Exchange, but similar organizations. And they will then invest in a company stock. And then electronically, they will then increase the value of that stock. And when it gets really high, they'll sell their investment. And then they'll just move out and let the stock fall again. And they will get the money out of that. And then uh, one of the most remarkable ones is the payroll scam, which are a Ukrainian group perpetrated in 2010 against a couple of companies on the West Coast in the United States, whereby they infiltrated the computer systems, went to the uh, accountancy and HR departments and created phantom employees, who, of course, they then awarded a salary to. And those salaries would go out, would be sent out to accounts in the United States, and from the accounts in the United States, they would be sent to a bank in Latvia and then from a bank in Latvia to a bank in Ukraine. This was uh, remarkable, remarkable stuff. And it netted $40 million for the thieves in Ukraine over a six-month period. So you have a whole variety of it. But the ones that you and I are likely to come across most are the credit card frauds. You're listening to Little Atoms this week with me, Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Misha Glennie about his book, Dark Market, Cyber Thieves, Cyber Cops and You. What I really loved about the book, and I thought it was a fantastic read, is there's a fantastic narrative and it, and it, and it works like a thriller. So I, I, I'm, very, I'm very reluctant to, to talk too much about the people involved in the book and, and obviously what happens to them, because I think that readers should discover that for themselves. But what we should talk about is, indeed, the um, the title of the book comes from one of the sort of central aspects to this world of, of cybercrime is these websites that are like basically web forums for criminals. And what's what seemed remarkable about them was their relative openness. And um, let's talk about, you know, where these came from and, and some of the, the big examples. Well, it's uh, very true. I mean, actually, the demise of 
Dark Market, which was one of these websites, and it was the premier English language website of its time from 2005 to late 2008. The demise of Dark Market led to a change in the behaviour of cybercriminals, precisely because security for them on Dark Market proved in the end to be insufficient. So without really giving anything away, the point about Dark Market was that there were roughly at any one time five administrators who would allow people in or out of the site and who would control the forum, check that everything was running smoothly. And one of those administrators was an agent of the FBI. Um, and so that's the sort of thriller aspect of the uh, story, which you very kindly pointed out. But behind this, there's a really interesting point. The, the first one, which really got going, and which I describe in the book, was called Carter Planet in 2001. And the great thing about Carter Planet was that the administrators who were called the family, and they were based in uh, Odessa in Ukraine, they were all Ukrainians, came up with a way of overcoming the central challenge that faces criminals on the web, and that is how can you trust a person you're doing business with when it's axiomatic that they're untrustworthy because they're a criminal. And so... Uh, Carter Planet came up with the escrow system, where one of the administrators agreed to act as escrow officer, so that if somebody was selling credit card details, say 10,000 French and British credit card details, they would send those details to the escrow officer, and the purchaser would send the money digitally to the escrow officer. The escrow officer would then choose a sample at random of those credit card details and check them in the ATMs all over the world. He'd get his pals in Brazil or New Zealand or wherever it was to take money out of ATMs. And if they all worked, he'd give the thumbs up. He'd release the credit card details to the purchaser and the money to the vendor. And this device led to really the industrialization of uh, credit card cybercrime uh, across the world. And once Carter Planet had collapsed, there were other ones which, which took its place, culminating in Dark Market. Now, because they became very lax on Dark Market in terms of who they allowed in, and indeed on the other sites as well, what's happened since Dark Market is, is that the security has been beefed up. The criminal cyber forums which still run tend to be run by Russians. They will have encrypted URLs, so you need to know the decryption in order to log on in the first place. And uh, they monitor the language much more closely than they used to. And of course, for Russians, this is very easy because a sort of bastardized English is the lingua franca of the net. But if you're doing a, if you're doing a forum in Russian, not only can you spot a non-Russian speaker just like that, but... If it's, say, a Russian speaker who's operating out of Atlanta or Washington, you can tell very quickly whether they know the latest slang or cultural references, you know, from St. Petersburg or Moscow. And so uh, they have found devices of making their activity more secure, but it's a permanent struggle for them. And the cybercriminals who I spoke to, what was really interesting about it was how they would the ones who were most present and most active are the most vulnerable ones. But you have a group of people who sit behind those sort of over-eager um, criminals who watch very carefully who comes in and out, who's doing what, 
And what I discover this is they have a counterintelligence capacity that they clock what the FBI is doing, including following confidential FBI conversations, which is pretty amazing. You talk about the rise of cyber warfare. Tell us what happened in Estonia. Mm. Estonia was in 2007, where there was a dispute between the Russian government and the Estonian government because the Estonian government wanted to move a statue that was in the centre of Tallinn, the capital, to a cemetery, which was habitually described... Uh, by all the press reports, as being on the outskirts of Tallinn. But in fact, it was only about a mile and a half from where the original statue was. And outskirts, I, don't know, I mean, I thought it was pretty much as close to the centre. Anyway, that's by the way. But the Russians objective, they said that this was an insult to the many millions of Russian citizens who did indeed die liberating the Baltic states from the Nazis. And... Uh, that this was evidence of a resurgence of indigenous Estonian fascism and nationalism. About a third of the population, or a quarter of the population, of Estonia is Russian-speaking, is ethnic Russian. And the Russian government also said that this was aimed at you know, further eroding their rights. Uh, anyway, the Estonian says, well, that's not true, and we have the right to move it, we're a sovereign state, and they moved it. And then in April and May 2007, in response to this, Estonia was flooded by so-called DDoS, denial of service, distributed denial of service attacks, which is basically when your systems are overwhelmed with a huge amount of traffic. And they are directed by massive computer systems known as botnets, which means that these are um, networks run by a control system, command and control system that uh, has in its power so-called zombie computers. These are yours and my computers all over the world which have been infected by a virus and they can be ordered by the command and control to do whatever it wants. And they swamped Estonia to such an extent that the bandwidth capacity of Estonia collapsed and Estonia eventually had to turn off the internet from the outside world in order to survive. Now, these this attack certainly emanated from Russia, but you can't identify who or why or wherefore um, was responsible for this attack. And so this is where you see criminal groups coming to the aid of the state, possibly because the state is you know warning them that if they don't assist them, then they may consider prosecuting them for some of the crimes that they've committed. And again, this is where crime and warfare morph in to each other in the cyber zone, making life very difficult for everyone. Just to finish off with, as I said, we've you know, deliberately stayed away from talking about the sort of bones of, of the plot of the book, but it, it's probably no surprise to say that some of the people you talk about end up doing some sort of serious jail time. Um, you sort of talk about this as being possibly wasteful of a valuable resource. Let's, let's talk about... <laughs> Talk about why that might be. Yeah, I still see some of those guys. There's one of them who's uh, called Jilzy, who's in Wormwood Scrubs, just up the road from where we are, and uh, I go and see him about once a month. These are people who became involved in cybercrime, generally in their early to mid-teens. Their descent into cybercrime was incremental, and it happened before their moral compass had fully developed. And by the time that they started to question the moral value of what they were doing. They were too deeply involved in it. And uh, we don't have any mechanism for rehabilitating people who've been convicted of 
cybercrime. In fact, in the case of Gilsey, there is this absurd situation whereby the judge, compelled by, again, legislation brought in by Tony Blair, who was on steroids when it came to the criminal justice system, compelled to place a so-called prevention of crime order on him, which means, and the judge has no discretion in this, that for five years after he's released from jail, this man will only be able to access a computer once a week in a public library under police supervision. Now, by the time Renu, to give him his name, comes out of jail, you won't be able to get out of bed without the mediation of the internet. And so how he's going to run his life. But in addition to that, the only skill that he has is using computers, and he uses them very, very well. And we need to harness that skill rather than force him back underground, because that's what will happen as a consequence of the proliferation of handheld devices. I mean, a mobile phone is not a mobile phone. It is a computer. And you can do the same with a mobile phone as you can sitting at your desk. So if he is not somehow encouraged to use those skills in a positive way, he's going to use, you know, in a, in a negative way. And so I think we need to see what a valuable resource these, people's, these people are, and we need to try and assist them in helping us. So we need these people because at the moment there is a dearth of competent people in the IT security industry. And what everyone has to understand is whether we like it or not, we will all have to engage with security on the internet. That's a perfect place for us to end. So I've been talking to Misha Glennie about his book, Dark Market, Cyber Thieves, Cyber Cops and You. It's out now from Bodley Head. Misha, thanks for speaking to Little Atoms today. Thank you. Before we end this week's show, I'd just like to make a quick announcement. This autumn, there is a series of cultural events at the Bishopsgate Institute in London under the theme of Whose Mind Is It Anyway? And Little Atoms has curated a number of events. The first one is called What's Behind the Built Environment and is on the evening of Thursday the 13th of October at 7.30pm. And we'll be looking at how the built environment is designed to influence our behaviour and such things. I'll be chairing the event and speakers include the author and journalist Anna Minton, Professor Alan Penn of the UCL Bartlett Facility of the Built Environment, and one of our most regular previous guests on Little Atoms, Jonathan Meads. The tickets cost £8, concession £6, and can be purchased from the Bishopsgate Institute's website, which is bishopsgate.org.uk. We hope to see some of you there. You've been listening to Little Atoms. You can find details of upcoming guests on our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening.